Father, thank you for your word as it nourishes our soul. It calls us to repentance. It reveals who you are. We would not know who you are without your word. So bless this time, I pray. In Jesus' name. In verses 1 and 2, Ryan, if you can put the text up. In verses 1 and 2, the Lord is going to hold court. If you have the outline, I, I know we don't have a paper outline that you can have, but if you have an electronic device, you can, you can look at the outline. It was in the bulletin that was sent out. Uh, my first point, the Lord holds court. In verse, verses 1 and 2, the Lord has chosen the setting to call court, and he has picked his jurors, the mountains, the hills, and the foundations of the earth. He has chosen them because they have been there from creation to see the Lord's faithfulness. In the first five chapters of the book, the Lord has laid out the sin of Israel and Judah. But the Lord has also offered hope, including the prophecy of the coming Messiah through Bethlehem and the restoration of the remnant of Israel. This is where we... This is where we come up with Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, out of Micah. The first indictment of the Lord. Verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. The Lord is really asking or impl implying, why have you grown tired of me and stopped walking in covenant with me, leaving me to, leaving me to walk after false gods? in which to seek your security. Micah has been prophesying prior to chapter 6 that Israel and Judah's sure inescapable judgment is due to two things. Walking after false gods and injustice. Walking after false gods. They did this through sorcery, fortune-telling, Worship and bowing down to idols, sacred poles and pillars, the ashram pillar, which was used to, in the worship of the Ugaritic mother goddess Asherah. It's even recorded for us in Second Chronicles 28 that the king of Judah, Ahaz, sacrificed his son to metal images of Baal and to other gods all over Judah. And then injustice. The rich and powerful are not providing justice, but they scheme iniquity. They oppress the people by coveting and taking land, taking houses, evicting women from their homes, consuming the flesh of God's people, taking bribes at all levels of government. It even talks about that they would break, he gives the image of breaking their bones and putting them in a pot. The idea of like taking bone and, and cooking the bones for soup and eating, eating the people, grinding them between their teeth. Just this wicked oppression. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. To this question, the Lord provides his own defense. The Lord lists three examples of how he has been faithful to walk in the covenant the first example he gives in verse 4, For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. 
And I set before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. What he's saying here is, I delivered you from the powerful Egyptian empire through miraculous signs and godly leaders and walked with you in the cloud by day and walked with you in the pillar of fire by night, reminding Israel that the Lord can be with them again and they need not fear Assyria. The situation here is that Assyria, if you think of a map, Assyria would be like a horseshoe from present-day Iraq on the east, up and over and down the Transjordan, through the northern kingdom, down to Judah. And Judah will eventually become a vassal and eventually will be conquered by Assyria. But they're in the way if they want to go and they want to take Egypt. They're at the southernmost end of the Assyrian kingdom. That is the plight that Israel finds himself in. So they're at a crossroads of who they will trust in. The second example that the Lord gives is in verse 5. He says, O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what, ba and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? This is a fun story in the Bible. As a kid, this is where the donkey talks. This is a story where the king of Moab has formed a plot with other nations to fight against Israel. And he wants the prophet of God to come and curse Israel. But instead, God causes him to bless Israel. And this is where God uses the donkey to speak to the prophet. The donkey actually stops and will not go. And the prophet yells at the donkey. And finally, the prophet is able to see what the donkey was able to see which is an angel of the Lord standing in his way, ready to slay him. And God intervened so that, that he would go and he would speak the word of God. And the Lord here calls to remembrance that he walked before them to deliver them from a conspiracy of nations, and surely he can deliver them again. The third example is at the end of verse 5, and remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. All of these acts are, are so we may know that God is faithful to be righteous, faithful to his covenant, righteous to his covenant that he's made with them. This is a location of the crossing of the Jordan from the wilderness into the promised land. The Lord brought them safely brought them safely to this place that they were going to cross. But the setting, the setting is at its flood stage, that the Jordan River is, is overflowing its banks. So the Lord brought them safely into the promised land through a miracle of parting the Jordan River at flood stage. When the priests walked, notice, with the presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, into the Jordan River, it parted. And the people walked over. Just days before, the Lord had promised Joshua that he would be with him like he had been with Moses. The Lord is emphasizing that if I can walk with you in covenant through the parting of the Jordan River at flood stage to fulfill my covenant promise to you, surely I can deliver you from Assyria. Gilgal is also where they 
they're commanded by the Lord to take up stones. And they set a monument upon the mountain. And it's recorded for us what the purpose of that monument was in Joshua 4.24. That all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. So when people looked at the mountain and they looked at the stones and the, and the children. There's some children here. I know there are. So children, when you look at that, those rocks, those stones that are there, and you ask your parents, why are those stones there? The parents were to reply. The stones are a memorial. I'm sorry. Um, it, it's a call to remembrance so that you may fear the Lord, your God. And the stones are a memorial to the covenant of the people walking with God in covenant and God walking with them. So this nation of Syria, they're a ruthless nation and they're a cause of great fear in the hearts of Israel and a source of pressure for them to worship other deities. But God is communicating that what I have provided, sorry guys, You know, it's a bummer when you're speaking and you kind of lose your place. Isn't that right, Harrison? It is, yeah. It's, it's a cause of great pressure to worship other deities. But God is communicating that I have provided in the past and I have walked in covenant love. Surely I'll provide for you now and in the future. My question is, what is your Assyria today? They feared Assyria. They feared the threat from without and the challenge and the pressure. What is your Assyria today? Can you trust God to provide for you? Can you trust that God's ways are the only path? God is the one we need to run to, the one we need to turn to with our fear and trouble. And wait and remember that he is our hope and our deliverance. And will be with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He has promised and covenanted with us to always be with us. So in Micah, this is, this is kind of the end, end of the Lord's first defense or his indictment and, and then his defense. So now we come to verse 6 and the people's response. And Micah's recording for us what he has heard the people saying. And they say this, With what shall we come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Most of what is here, the Lord doesn't require. These are things that they have, they have added on to the requirements of the Lord. There's two possibilities there's probably more than two, but I'm going to highlight two for what is happening in this section. First, could be that they see the keeping of the law as an impossibility. It's impossible to keep the law. The law is just too much. Maybe it's more than, than what some of the other gods that they've chosen for themselves are requiring of them. They think the Lord could not be satisfied with what they're able to bring him kind of like a teacher you can never please. 
in seventh grade, I, I was in a home economics class, and I had a teacher, um, I won't mention her name, but uh, it was basically a cooking class, and so our first assignment in cooking was we were going to cook muffins. I wasn't excited as a 13-year-old boy to be in this class, or 12-year-old boy. In fact, I was dreading it. I tried to get out of the class, but at least we were going to make muffins. And so she said, take out the textbook and begin to copy the recipe. The recipe seemed to be about a page and a half long of small print. Why it was that long, I have no idea. It had everything in there. You know, these, this is the utensil you need. This is how you open the oven. This is how you turn it on. Um, you know, because, hey, 13-year-olds can burn the school down. And uh, so we begin to copy the recipe. And, and we're nearing the end of, I'm nearing the end of copying it. I'm in a table of about five or six. And another table begins to make noise. And she loses it. And she says, everyone in the class is going to copy the recipe again. I'm like, oh, man. The next day, we're copying the recipe. This day, it's a different table. Copy it again. This goes on. It seemed to me for weeks. It might have only been five days, but to me, it felt like a month. Finally, she comes to my table, and she says, Mr. Andre, why are you not writing? I said, I'm done. She's like, what do you mean you're done? I said, I am not writing this recipe anymore. This is ridiculous. And that, she just loses it and yells at me, out, out, out. I go down to the counselor's office and Mr. Chin says, Mr. Andre, why are you here? I explain the situation and he's like, would you like to be a hall monitor during this period? I'm like, yes, that is awesome. But we felt like we couldn't please our teacher. And, in, and often I think people can feel like they can't measure up and they can't please God. And perhaps that was what was going on here. That is not the common thought of commentators. The common thought of commentators is, is a second. Is that they're mocking the Lord. One commentator writes, Out of sovereign grace and without cost to Israel, the Lord had saved the nation from Egypt and Moab and brought her to her promised destiny. How could the nation now suppose extravagant gifts were required to save her from Assyria? Instead of living by faith in God's saving acts, demonstrating the Lord's grace and imminence with his people, the petitioner hopes instead to meet God and earn his favor by escalating the size and material of his gifts. End quote. The worshiper starts with a year-old calf, which is considered the prime age for a calf, the most expensive calf. It's been fattened up all year. They've spent a lot of time feeding it grain, putting in the best pasture to be the fattened calf. So that in itself would be an expensive gift. Next, he escalates to a gift only a king could give thousands of rams. In fact, we see Solomon, I think, at the dedication of the temple. He's offering thousands of animals at the dedication of the temple. Then an infinity of expensive oil, and finally to something any Israelite should know is absurd and offensive to the Lord, to receive a human sacrifice. The Lord made it clear when he, when he asked Abraham to take Isaac up onto the mountain and to tie him to the altar. And in that moment, the Lord provided the ram, creating a picture for us of the coming Messiah, that God would one day provide the ram John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he gave us that picture. 
but also communicating, I do not require human sacrifices like the nations around us. The commentator goes on, outwardly the worshiper appears very righteous as he bows before God with gift in hand. But in truth, his insulting questions betray a, depra- a, a desperately wicked heart, blinded to God's gracious character and acts. He reasons within his own depraved frame of reference. He need not change. God must change. In effect, by his refusal to repent of his unbelief and injustice, he suggests that God, like man, can be bought. End quote. This perhaps has some similarities to a story in the New Testament. The elder son refuses to come into the house and to be with his father, who represents God in the story. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have been with you and served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. At the end of the story, the elder son is is outside, alone. The younger brother, who was repentant and knew that only his father could save him, was inside having a relationship with his father. The elder son had a relationship based on a contract. I do this for you, and you should do this for me. It was not a relationship experiencing the Father's grace, but one of works. Likewise, the Israelites are arguing, tell us what we need to sacrifice to fulfill the contract. They seem to have no interest in being with the Lord. That's really where I want to take us today, to encourage us, are we really walking with the Lord or are we approaching the Lord in similar ways? My experience of 32 years of working in missions and dealing with, I don't know, maybe around 2,000 individuals and and able to talk in and around spiritual things is that the vast majority of them think that God will accept them because they try their best or because they are good. Of course, they don't try their best and, and they don't try to do good all the time. They often say that. And that's easy for us as those of us that are sitting here and we know Christ to say, yeah, that's what people do. But sadly, the majority of the students who would identify as Christians, followers of Christ, they, they have provided, this, provided me with the same answer. It's, it's a very, it's just a sad thing every time when these, these young people, high school and college age, that they say, yeah, God's going to accept me because I've been good thereby missing the grace that God has provided through Jesus' sacrifice, the ultimate and only sacrifice that's sufficient to meet the requirements of an infinite God. They are met for us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God. He is the only Son that could ever be accepted as a propitiation because He is God. It is His blood that makes those who come to the Father clean and righteous, If you're here today and have not placed your hope in Jesus Christ and received the free gift that he offers of his blood to cover your sins, then I invite you. I invite you today to receive Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. 
you say, well, how do I do that? What might I do? It's not really about doing. It's about God has changed your heart. But here's what you could acknowledge before the Lord, before Jesus, before the Father. Acknowledge to the Lord that you believe that Jesus is God and that he has died for all of your sins. And that it's your desire to make him your Lord and your King. And that you want to turn from trusting in something else and trusting in him. That's repentance. That's really what repentance is. Repentance isn't saying, God, I'm going to stop doing this. But repentance is really saying, Lord, I've been doing this thing because I haven't been trusting you. And he calls all of us to repent. And that's what, as, as we go to the elements, there's going to be a time that we can repent and we can turn. Say, Lord, I need to trust in you again. I'm holding this against my brother and I need to go. And I need to make it right. I'm holding this in my heart, bitterness. And I need to say, Lord, I need to turn to you and trust in you. Works is an easy default mode to engage in as we evaluate our walk with God. To think that somehow God loves us more if we perform more or better. After all, this is how the world typically works. This is what your boss expects of you. If you're, a, if you're an owner of a company, this is what you expect from your employees, that they will perform. But this is not God's way. He delights over us because of Christ because we are his child. God does call us to, good, to walk in good works, but they're not the means to his love. We are fully and completely loved because we are in Christ. Third point, the, Lord call, the Lord's call to repentance in a relationship. So this is the verse that we all know. He has called you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The Lord here is calling. The Lord distills, in a sense, he's distilling the law and repentance down to three things. Do justice. This is something that everyone is capable of. Everyone has the ability to do justice, to do what's right, to look around and to see injustice and to, and to act Then he says, love kindness or love mercy. This engages the heart, something that is much, much more difficult. A person can do justice out of duty, but an act of mercy or kindness because you love, that is a whole different story. It speaks to a change deep inside, and that's what this is getting at. That's what the Lord is getting at, that the heart is changed, that the, that the hearer, the one who's now, he's calling to approach, that there's a change in their heart from deep in the inside. Finally, God asks him to come walk with him humbly and prudently, or prudently, wisely. There's some debate on, on what the word, you know, there's a range of meaning on the word. But really, when, when, if you're walking in the presence of the Lord, you really can't walk any other way than humbly. Because his spirit is there and it convicts you of sin. It calls out things and says, hey, Fred, this is in your life. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent and trust me? 
But when we're away from the Lord, it's easy or it's easier. But as we walk towards his presence and we come, his Holy Spirit begins to point things out in our life. And sometimes that's why we want to stay at a safe distance. We might be staying at a safe distance so that we don't have to confront our sin, but we're not in a safe place. The safe place is coming before the Lord because he is safe. Sometimes we hear the quote from C.S. Lewis, and he says, you know, um, you know, it talks about the lion, and the, and the lion isn't, um, the lion isn't safe, but he is good, and that's supposed to represent God. I take issue with that. I, I understand what he's trying to say, but I disagree. God is safe, and he is good, or I should say, he is good, and he is safe. There is no safer place in the presence of the Lord in this life and in the next. In other places in Micah, Israel is admonished to walk in the name of the Lord or walk in the path of the Lord. But here the emphasis is more on the personal relationship and heart attitude. Come walk with Elohim, the great creator God of the universe. That's what Elohim means. In Micah, Elohim is referred to, that word, that word that we use for God all through chapter 1 of Genesis is referred to to other gods. Elohim, the great creator God of the universe. But here in verse 8, what we have is, is we have Yahweh used, and then it says, come walk with the great creator God of the universe. What it's saying is that Elohim, that Yahweh, he is the great creator God of the universe. So it's going from Yahweh to Elohim, pointing out that, that Elohim, the, the God that we say there's a great creator God, I'm telling you who it is. It's Yahweh. We see this emphasis upon walking with God in several other places in the Old Testament. And Noah walked with God in Genesis 6-9. And Enoch walked with God and was no more in Genesis 5-22. And in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, we see that God is walking in the garden and he calls to Adam in the cool of the day. It seems with the expectation that Adam and Eve should be there walking with him. As if this was a normal experience and they would meet the Lord when he came and he walked with them. And they would have fellowship with him. But their new experience of shame has them hiding and missing out on being with God. Maybe deep down, there's still some shame that keeps us at a safe distance from God that we don't really experience truly walking with God, but just seeking to be obedient, maybe walking in his ways. In, in Genesis chapter 1, there's lots of things that you can discuss in Genesis chapter 1, but one of the things in Genesis chapter 1 is that all through chapter 1, you have this word Elohim used over and over and over and over again. Almost ad nauseum. That if you, if you were to read Genesis chapter 1, and you, instead of Elohim, you would read the great creator God of the universe. By the time you come to the end of chapter 1, you're asking the question, who is the great creator God of the universe? And in 2.4, we are supplied with who it is. It is Yahweh. In your Bibles, it's typically indicated as all caps, L-O-R-D, or maybe L and then O-R-D, 
depending on your translation. But he is the great creator God of the universe. And then from there on, you see the Lord God, the Lord God. Meaning that Yahweh is the great creator God of the universe. Finally, as you move to the end of the book, God offers a future hope. As the court case ends, and I encourage you to read it, because we are only in the middle of the court case. As the court case ends in chapter 7, the Lord holds out hope for his people. In 7, 19, and 20, he will, writes this, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers. Here at the end of Micah, God breaks forth with hope for the future, a time when he will destroy our iniquity and remove our sin completely. As we see the unfolding of the Messiah, we see it as, we see it, meaning the unfolding of Messiah as, as we come to the New Testament, we see it as Christ who is tread upon by God, and by this our iniquity is removed. In verse 20, Micah says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob or Israel. But then he goes back even further. And he, and he hasn't mentioned Abraham at all in, in Micah. But he goes back to a promise that is older, the promise to Abraham. The promise or covenant to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Has this been fulfilled? In Galatians 5.29, we see its fulfillment when God writes, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I believe speaking to this promise that Micah is calling them back to, this hope. In a number of places, he holds out hope for the remnant that will come back. If we belong to Christ, we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are with Christ, and Christ is with us. Jesus says he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us. He said that I will send a comforter to be with you, the Holy Spirit. I will always be with you to the very end of the age. As we come to communion, I encourage you to see the elements as God's love for you. Come to him and repent. We all need to live a life of repentance and enter deep into a relationship with God. And if I could leave you with that one thing, is that God wants to walk with you. He doesn't just want you to walk in his ways and in his path, but he wants to walk with you. He wants to know you. Well, he does know you. He wants you to know him and experience him. For we have been brought near by the body and the blood of Christ, which these elements represent, and these elements, they nourish us, they feed us. So in the time of reflection, as Harrison will come, strengthen your relationship. Reflect upon these gifts that the Lord has for us. Knowing that you are always walking with our just and merciful and loving God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, I'm going to end in prayer. I'm going to end in prayer.
Let us pray. Father, as we opened your word, we see your desire, your calling out to the nation. What have I done to you? What have I done that you've left? Lord, you haven't failed. It is we who have left. Lord, strengthen us through these elements. Is there an an outward sign of an invisible reality, as John Calvin said, that they represent the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us and his body broken for us as we see them, as we taste them, as we feel them. May we remember your covenant with us and your love for us. I pray in Jesus' name.